I hear you believe this is a phase. What if it isn't? What are the costs of affirming your child right now versus not affirming them? Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. A skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Welcome back to the Seasoned RD or welcome to the Seasoned RD podcast if this is your first time tuning in. I could not wait for this episode to drop for all of us with Scout Silverstein with their great help in understanding parent relationship with their adolescents and teens seeking gender affirmation. Despite the political climate in the U.S. right now around gender affirming care, this episode, in my opinion, is so needed right now. Regardless of the climate we're in, as Scout said, in the eating disorders world, we're saving lives and sometimes at the same time causing harm, which is what we've all committed through our professions to do no harm. As dietitians, listen in. What does it matter if we are working on food? What about someone's gender identities? Listen in. I took lots of notes. I stumbled over all of my words, and this is just me grappling and practicing right in front of you and being vulnerable. So as this relates to my MNT rating form, Medical Nutrition Therapy Rating Form, many of us RDs in the eating disorders world are on the four on the scale, more into the realm of nutrition therapy than a two, which is kind of a medical nutrition dietitian. If you don't know about Fed Up and what they are providing for marginalized folks with eating disorders, please check out their webpage and their conference, which is coming right up. And I believe is something that you won't want to miss. All the information is in the show notes. Welcome to the Seasoned RD Podcast, Scout Silverstein. Thanks for having me. We can't wait to learn and chat with you, but we'll ease you into it with our icebreakers. My first one for you, mountains or beach? Mountains. I discovered this past year that the only way I can enjoy the beach is if I wear socks because I don't like the feeling of sand. It is rough. And then it gets in your shoes and it gets in the bed and it gets everywhere. I get that. And then breakfast or dinner? Breakfast for all meals. I agree. So like savory breakfast or sweet breakfast? Switch it up. Yeah, I like to make like a breakfast bowl. I haven't done it in a while, but for a long time, I was doing like a hash browns with eggs and salsa and making my little breakfast bowl at home. But I also love just like a toaster waffle with peanut butter. Absolutely. All right. And the last one is audiobook or paper book? Audiobook. I listen to two to three audiobooks a week, like while I'm winding down for bed on a commute. Mm-hmm. I'm the same. I think that that's the best way to do it for me. I know some people really like to hold paper and have it there. And I think there's part of that. I like writing things down. You'll see me do that during this, but 
the audiobook I can listen to while I'm doing something else. And and you can bookmark it and come back to it. So this also, if there's any favorite books that you have for us throughout this conversation, you let us know. Oh, I have so many. Um, I bet you do. I recently listened to Being Mortal, which is really good. It's about like culture and aging. I just finished Prison by Any Other Name, which essentially goes into all of the reformist arguments to replace imprisonment and why they're as problematic and still contribute to surveillance and the oppression of marginalized people. Saving Our Own Lives is a harm reduction book that recently came out by my friend Shira Hassan. is really good. My favorite fiction book is The Story of Edgar Sautel by David Robluski, which is about a family that breeds dogs and a child who is mute, like born without the ability to speak and his relationship to the dogs. Oh my gosh. And that's just a handful. I know that you yes. have a lot more. So <laughs> you two, we, we kind of met through, oh gosh. Is it Whitney? It was not, but I wanted to have you and Whitney Trotter on this to kind of just get in the thick of things with me and help me show how I'm trying to learn and unlearn all the things about transgender nutrition, people of color, marginalizations. Kate Scafati. Oh, Kate. Kate's my co-chair at Academy for Eating Disorders in the Professionals in Recovery. Okay. Yeah. So Kate told me about you. Yes. And one of the things that I was fascinated with also is like how to how to talk to parents about transgender if their child has an eating disorder or not, but also how to how to best support them. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit, but there's so many things that I want to talk about, especially the conference coming up with Fed Up. Yes. So what do you want to talk about first? Maybe let's start with some of the skill-based conversation so we could wrap up with people remembering the fed up conference which will be co-hosted with body reborn i'm not sure if you're familiar but body reborn is a newer all bipoc collective that offers peer mentorship and an eight-week recovery program at no cost to participants whoa yeah i'm glad to hear about this so when I worked at a children's hospital, I found myself in the room with sometimes the parent and the teen, and the the teen, I, I want to say the word, and I don't even know if this is the right word, but felt continually disrespected because their parent kept referring to them by a pronoun that was assigned to them at birth. And I've sought supervision from this, and I've learned not to apologize if I'm the one making the mistake, and because then that means that they have to then patch it up for me, and that's not their job. But what 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 do we do? I just would cringe every time the parent would use the pronoun that was not what they identified with, and watch the face of the teen. Yeah, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I typically recommend having sessions with the caregivers 
separately at first to work with them on their own biases or their own blocks in being affirming to their child because the dynamic when the parents are together with the children is trickier to navigate and having the parents or caregivers able to do some of that work on their own feels like a necessary first step. So I could speak a little bit to what some of the approaches are in working with parents or caregivers directly without the child present, if that's helpful. That would be helpful. And I've already written down three different things just of the language that you've used, because these are things I I want to plant in my head and remind even the word affirming care as something that doesn't roll from my tongue very well. So yes, how Mm -hmm. meeting with the parent first. Sorry, if I could add on to that, another scenario that comes up very frequently is that the child or the teen, the patient, wants to go by this set of pronouns, but they do not want that to be said in front of the parent. So how do you handle that as well? Yeah, it's perfect. I'm glad you asked. So I'll actually answer your question first, Abby. What we do at Equip, and we do this because I'm recommending it and I recommend it for any practices is we have a gender care note that's being developed. So at intake or at any point in the treatment experience, when a patient indicates that they are identifying with a gender that is not cis. So anyone who's transgender, non-binary, gender queer, questioning, et cetera, then that triggers staff member to fill out a gender care note, ideally the therapist, but if it's at admission, then the admissions coordinator may do it. And the gender care note includes spaces to indicate what the patient's pronouns are and in what setting they want them used. And the settings that we give as an example are one-to-one sessions that the patient is having with their provider team, family sessions, caregiver-only sessions where maybe the therapist is meeting only with the caregivers and not the patient in group settings. And then if misgendering happens, how the patient prefers that to be addressed or if they prefer it to not be addressed. Additionally, if the patient expresses that they would like to use previous pronouns, so not their affirmed or asserted pronouns, but the pronouns associated with their gender assigned at birth, then we ask if they would like to debrief after those sessions so they are able to preserve the trust with the therapist or the provider and saying like, yes, I did ask you to misgender me (laughs) in front of my parents, but I still get to know that like you still see me as my appropriate gender. Awesome. And we have a disclaimer also for the patients that certain parts of their medical record may be available to external providers or to caregivers, depending on state and patient's age and what they want their record or their patient chart to reflect with the same considerations in mind. That's helpful to know. So you said this is something y'all will have with Equip. Is Is this something anybody could access off of Equip's website? Not currently. I hope in the future, yes. (laughs) But this is also all informed by evidence-based research and by the work of other transgender people as well. Some of it is my original thought, but most of it is aggregate from community knowledge. (laughs) And I would consider that to be best practice and would encourage treatment centers 
who don't have that knowledge base to work in consultation with transgender people in the eating disorder field of which there are many of us. There are, and that's the cool part is that um, it's probably been like that for a while, but we're all starting to open our eyes and, and embrace that. So I'm super excited to hear about that. The, it, I'm, you know, your brain as a program director and, and kind of having that original thought, but then supporting it with some of the research and now you have, and it's proprietary, I'm kind of using that word, but it's something that you're doing for Equip that I I think would be great sometime. Well, you've done presentations on this. You just did something at... ERC was other members of FedUp, and FedUp does offer training. I have a session coming up at Meta in May on using cognitive dissonance-based interventions for eating disorder and body image work. And at ICED, ICED, everyone says it differently. Mm. We're actually doing a whole workshop on working with non-affirming parents. So if anyone is going to the international conference, we'll have 90 minutes to go through all of this. Okay. So in a nutshell, to go back to my original question, in that moment when the parent keeps non-affirming and I haven't done the gender care note because I just found out about it. So what does a dietitian do or a therapist in that moment when they're watching the patient cringe, when the parent keeps using the wrong pronouns or the non-affirming pronouns? Am I, am I saying that right? Non-affirming. Okay. I think the first thing to do is to do some discovery to identify what the reason is for misgendering or using the wrong pronouns. For some people, it's a lack of education, and that sounds insulting, but it's it means <laughs> what it sounds like, just like not having had access to resources or support to learn about the importance of pronouns or diverse gender identities. For some parents or caregivers, it may be fear or grief or denial about a child's phase of transition, thinking that it is a symptom of the eating disorder or a symptom of mental illness, that it is part of like a social phase that everybody's suddenly trans, which is not evidence-based either. And I can talk about that a little bit more. So I think first identifying like what the root cause is for the misgendering and also giving grace that like sometimes it takes people a little while to change their vocabulary and I say that with a caveat that that's not to be used as an excuse because sometimes people will get pronouns wrong and they'll just say well I just I spent 30 years calling you xyz or I never used they them pronouns before and it just feels weird rolling off my tongue and those are true for those people, but it does not negate the fact that it's actually quite easy if the effort is being put in <laughs> to adapt pretty quickly. There are tools online, minus18.org is a Australian website, I believe, and they have an interactive game, essentially, that you choose a pronoun and then they ask you to kind of plug in the proper use of it in different sentences, or there are ways to practice 
I often suggest, particularly for people having trouble with using they, them pronouns, that they use they, them pronouns for everybody for three days, because unless you're using they, them pronouns to describe a trans woman who has worked very hard to be gendered correctly with she, her pronouns, I don't really see it as harmful. <laughs> or, and likewise, I, I would not recommend doing that if there is a trans man who has worked very hard to use he, him pronouns and they, them would be invalidating. But for cis people, I have not seen any cis people be bothered by someone referring to them with they pronouns saying, oh, they, they just went out to get breakfast and they'll be back shortly. Exactly. Uh, It's exactly. So one of the things that I learned and you and I talked earlier from one of my teachers, Whitney Trotter, is as I'm trying to do all of the, the open, accepting the wisdom from you from my other teachers in the field is she said, Beth, you're well, hundred percent, you're going to get it wrong. <laughs> I mean, that's just a, that's just a thing. And then she said, you don't need to go into settings to be there, to be with people who are transgender or people of color. You have the, that impact in your own world. So she gave an example, her husband's a pastor and she has the clout in her own area of of being able to say things that maybe are different and point those out. Okay, so this is there's a point to this. Right after this call, I was out with some friends and one someone who works in customer service was complaining about a person who called in and said, "My name is I'm just going to pull something star. I use they, them pronouns. And then the customer service person was saying, okay, thank you. And then what, what can I help you with? And then all of a sudden, okay, ma'am, we'll get you to the right person. And then of course got the complaint, the company did. And so the, the friend was saying that they were clearly female and that's kind to say, ma'am, that's how we're taught. And I said, well, then you need to teach your people who answer the phone differently. Because to be respectful, the kind and respectful is they told you what they wanted to be referred to as. Yeah, so I also think it's so funny when, not funny, but interesting when customer service agents or anyone sticks so strongly to, well, they're clearly this, they're clearly that, or their voice sounded this way. There is diversity of sex traits and gender attributes, even in cisgender people. There are cis men who have very high feminine voices. There are cis women who have deeper voices. And if a cis man or a cis woman on the phone was like, actually, I am a woman or actually I am a man and you're assuming I'm not based on my voice. I imagine the customer service agent would be really apologetic. apologetic. Mm. It feels like just for trans people that it's kind of perceived as us asking people to do something out of the ordinary when really that diversity exists even outside of the trans community. Ooh, yeah, very helpful. Okay. So 
I don't know if we if we got to this part, but back to the parent in the room. Yes, I could give a few different examples of okay. common misconceptions and the way that I would recommend approaching them. One of the big ones that has come up increasingly in the last few years is the idea that the child's asserted gender identity is a phase or is connected to this social phenomena, quote unquote, it's not actually, it doesn't exist, but this published term called rapid onset gender dysphoria. It was a term that was coined in 2016 through an online blog. And then a researcher, I think in the Boston area, somewhere in the Northeast, did a research study and recruited parents who were already definitively not affirming to their children for this survey, this research survey, to make rapid onset gender dysphoria also acknowledged in the academic sphere and thus created peer-reviewed evidence base around rapid onset gender dysphoria. The thing is, obviously, the sample was extremely biased, right? They did not go to websites of people who were supporting their trans kids to see what their thoughts were. So it's contributing to the spread of false information and this, like, panic among parents, particularly of children who were designated female at birth and are now expressing themselves to be non-binary or transmasculine. So my suggestion here is typically to approach the topic with the caregivers by digging into the research and the evidence base by asking, okay, let's look at the sample. Let's look at where people were recruited from. Do you think this is objective? Like now with this information, just because something is peer reviewed doesn't mean that there is not bias included. I mean, I'm a person who peer reviews papers all the time. And I actually gave my first like rejection recently to a bunch of eating disorder researchers who were publishing on an issue around transgender people and eating disorders. And there was just so much incorrect information that even when I gave them the revise and resubmit the first time they came back and it still didn't make sense. But if they didn't get me as a reviewer and they got another cis person who was familiar with the trans community but didn't have the in-depth experience, it's very likely they would have been published. So I always say like approach research with caution. I do think an evidence base is necessary, but for rapid onset gender dysphoria specifically, I think it's useful to dig into the literature. I also think the idea of asking the caregivers to think through the benefits versus the risks of demonstrating initial acceptance, even if it is a phase, so, or even if they believe it's a phase. So I hear you believe this is a phase. What if it isn't? What are the costs of affirming your child right now versus not affirming them, right? And most of the people we're working with, especially if their child doesn't care, they're already experiencing either like self-injurious behaviors or depression or anxiety. And we know that the parent-child relationship can be such a protective factor if it is supportive. And kind of leaning into that like strengths-based alternative of, you know, do you know how much like the support would mean to you, even if you don't believe it, just kind of like going through the motions and at least like demonstrating that support to them and seeing how that impacts their mental health. Because if that support is going to be able to be seen to improve their mental health by the parents or the caregivers, then I'm pretty sure that's going to yield more buy-in from the parents and caregivers to actually shift their attitudes and beliefs around the child's gender. That's going to be the part that I'm going to replay over and over again to get that 
I think that's what we had talked about. Like, I hear you believe that. And that is so powerful. It reminds me too of even, oh, your child has an eating disorder. No, they don't, you know, no, they don't. And we don't have to mince words about what the diagnosis is or what's happening. There's malnutrition happening. Or I hear you believe that they are, what are, what's happening now? What's the harm in supporting them? Yeah. yeah. I have like a course that employees at Equip go through and we have three sample questions at the end of, you know, like, uh, Joe is misgendering their child, you know, and like, how would you respond? And once in a while, somebody will submit an answer saying, well, we believe in gender affirming care. So we're going to gender your child correctly. And I'm like, no, 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 that's so directive, <gasps> right? Like if we're going to be directive towards parents, we're just going to shut down. So asking as many open-ended questions as possible. So another example, parents or caregivers who think that someone's newly asserted gender experience is a manifestation of their mental illness or is like just another thing you know their child is already diagnosed with an eating disorder self-injuring has anxiety maybe has another like co-occurring diagnosis now this is like a cherry on top to the parents that's how they're feeling and it's like well what if all of these behaviors and distress is actually due to the child's gender not being affirmed and they are just now realizing that the gender dysphoria that they didn't have words for was driving a lot of those eating disorder behaviors or was like producing some of that anxiety and now that they're expressing it this is an opportunity for us to rather than like pathologize it say is this something that if we work on the other things may improve also using evidence-based research so like when people say I think my child's going to change their minds because they're always like into one thing and then they drop it two weeks later. We know that um, regret rates for gender transition are extremely low. So 0.3% in a longitudinal study expressed regret. That's like such, such a low number. And also just because your child is coming out as transgender does not mean that all of the steps of transition are going to happen immediately. So even I think some parents and caregivers really benefit from just some grounding of like, okay, what, what do we know today? What is the next step today? What are, what is like a reasonable timeline for things? that uncertainty can feel really destabilizing to caregivers. Something as a dietitian in the outpatient setting, I'm I'm sure in many settings, that's uncomfortable is when parents get angry or they're just really not wanting to hear what you have to say or even mess around with the questions that you're asking them. So what would you advise in that situation when the response is, you know, screw you, basically. I don't want to hear about this. We're leaving. Yes, that does happen. Okay, so one thing I recommend, particularly something I've seen come up more than once, is caregivers saying, I'm coming to you for eating disorder treatment. I don't want to hear about my child, like that kind of thing. And that is where we kind of explain that gender and eating disorder are not, like, you can't really detach them. They're inextricably linked as part of that experience and explaining that if we neglect to support the child's exploration of gender and so even the words I'm using right now like I feel like are very important for parents 
and caregivers to hear is exploration of gender is very different than saying like current or asserted gender and knowing in which situations to use that softer, more expansive language versus which situations, like if there's a teenager who has been saying for two and a half years, but I'm a trans boy, I'm a trans boy and the parents aren't being supportive. That is where I may use the language of asserted or current gender. If it is a child that two weeks ago said, you know what, like I realized that part of my distress it's because I'm non-binary. That is where I may use the exploration of your child's gender because of where they are in their own personal understanding of gender transition and because of how much exposure the parents or caregivers at that point would have to the topic where exploration sounds much less demanding and scary to a parent. Mm, I love that. So when you were talking about how they're inextricably linked, I had um, someone say, why are you trying to be an ally when people digest, because as a dietitian, people digest food the same way. <laughs> like that's oversimplification, but that was their comment. They're also concerned about my spiritual wellness in the Christianity faith. Mm-hmm. So these are things I'm trying very hard to understand and to, I really, this is the goal to be an ally and it's not just checking the boxes. It's really going out there and doing the thing and being open and talking and, and defending. And so these, these words that you're using exploration of gender is if it's kind of a newer thing. Also like cis people at times may explore their gender too right like when we think of gender expression as what people see makeup people wear different clothing people wear I actually just had a co-worker who is a newish friend tell me that because of their interaction with me and other trans people and their work with transgender youth in a clinical setting they realize that they're gender queer So Mm. if you think of gender as a lifelong journey and as a spectrum, cis people, I used to be a cis person, you know, (laughs) like no one is immune to having different aspects of their gender maybe shifting over time. Um, The other thing I would say about dietetics specifically is I have had various experiences with dietitians who are like EDRDs. I've had some experiences where it's still very technical. It's meal planning and it's talking about um, intake. And I've had other situations where it's a dietitian who is doing that, but is also processing with the patient what fears are coming up for them, what blocks are coming up and being able to meet the intake and doing some of the body image work and reframing kind of distorted thoughts. And I say that with a caveat that framing thoughts as distorted for trans people around body image, I would tread lightly there because it's a very real thing that like we're responding to the pressures of society and appearance ideals in a way that our safety is really tied up to that. But yet with eating disorders, there are going to be some distorted thoughts typically. And so when I think of like gender affirming nutrition considerations, I'm thinking of interpretation of DEXA scans and ensuring that you're interpreting them corresponding to the appropriate 
sex designation or figuring out how to creatively interpret taking into account someone's sex traits. And I think the same thing for lab values and for calculating target weights or calculating target intake. If you have someone who is on hormone replacement therapy on a low dose, so their hormone profile is somewhere ambiguously between typical male, typical female, then you may interpret labs accordingly where something that's out of range for female, but in range for male, you're looking at that with a little bit more care and creativity and how you're kind of establishing someone's medical profile between like anatomy, chromosomes, hormones. Typically the recommendation is someone's dominant hormone profile will determine how you're calculating things. Also considering the effects of hormone replacement therapies. So um, like, you know, in some feminizing hormones, you might get hypophosphatemia and for refeeding, that's going to be a concern. For menstruation, that's another thing to consider when hormones are in use, how that's going to affect menstruation if you're using that as a marker of nutritional stabilization or nutritional recovery. And I don't know. I think like having just like a little bit more in-depth knowledge around gender dysphoria is going to be helpful for all dietitians. But, you know, that's a whole day conversation. Yes. It really, and I put looking at that with a little more care mm-hmm. and anatomy, chromosomes and hormones and really understanding that. And, and I, I didn't think about the DEXA because that's a slower moving compared to labs as far as changes but I'm the, I'm the type of dietitian who's more nutrition therapy. And so it's looking at the relationship to food and relationship to body. So does a typical eating disorder therapeutic treatment, like love your body the way it is, contradict trans supporting therapeutic modalities? I mean, are they the same or different? They're different. I am curious about the state of the eating disorder field right now with what body image paradigms are currently in use. I feel like so much has been shifting over the past few years, but that could be my own bias of being in relationship with mostly progressive providers and treatment centers. (laughs) So for trans and non-binary people, I tend to recommend using body neutrality a bit more often and body liberation because the love your body can really feel impossible for people who are living in a body that corresponds to other people with the inappropriate sex or gender for that person. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I'm, I can't write fast enough, <laughs> but I guess I can listen back to this, right? I did yeah. it record Abby, right? Please tell me I hit record. It's recording. <laughs> Yeah, or, or I think of like the the presentation that my friend Allie, Laura, and I are doing at Meta in May on cognitive dissonance based interventions. I'm a big fan of those. We actually adapted our manual, so we have a group specifically for trans and gender nonconforming patients, and it goes through many of the things are the same. So, like you know, the first activity is let's list like the masculine ideal and the feminine appearance ideal and for the non-binary ideal, we add that in for the TGNC version. We have certain exercises that it's kind of like a clap back exercise. So one of the facilitators will say something like, I'm so fat. And then the patient will have to respond with that. So 
you know, the mechanism is they're likely thinking I'm so fat about themselves. And if they're going to give like a response to that to someone else, that could help them learn to give that response to themselves. And again, a disclaimer, we are a very haze aligned group right. of people. We're not saying fat is a bad thing. It's part of the work that is built in with intention for people who are experiencing a fear of fatness. And then we have other situations that are more like role plays where we may in the original manual have things like, I'm your friend who has taken a green juice cleanse to the extreme. Now tell me like why I'm wrong or differently. And so we built in examples that are more salient specifically to the trans experience of like, I'm restricting my food because I feel like my hips are too big and it makes me feel like I'm perceived and, and I'm not a woman. And instead of telling me where I'm wrong, it's like, tell me what I could do differently. And that way, like the person who responds to it gets to kind of like build up those ideas for themselves and hopefully apply them to themselves. It's really difficult for them to identify what they would do differently in a situation or how they would change their thoughts. I'll say like, okay, what's like a, a thought that you have that feels distressing? And it might be something like, I shouldn't eat when other people aren't eating. And I'm like, now if a friend said that to you, what would you say back to them? And the like, what would you tell a friend thing is my little magic trick for teenagers because they're like, oh, and I tell my friend they, they should be able to eat whenever they want because everybody needs nutrition. I'm like, okay, then next two times you have that thought about yourself. Can you like say that back mm -hmm. to yourself as a child? I love that. So tell, remind before we go into the whole conference for Fed Up, because I want to hear all about that. But Meta is in the Northeast. It's the Dietetic Association or? It's the Multi-Service Eating Disorder Association. Yes. A nonprofit. This year's conference looks pretty cool. There is actually quite a bit of focus on supporting professionals in recovery. Actually, Kate Scafati is doing a panel or a session and then one of the keynotes is going to be Aaron Flores and I don't want to like misspeak on who is presenting maybe it's okay. right but it's a like one of the big keynotes that everybody goes to is also on how to support professionals in recovery or who may awesome. really want support okay excellent well tell us about the conference sure so fed up is hosting a conference in hybrid format so there will be opportunity to join in person or virtually. In person will be held in New York City at the Martinique Hotel near Herald Square. And the premise of the conference is that I'm tired of going to conferences where I maybe learn one thing after 48 hours of going to sessions. I imagine many people listening have a similar experience who have been in the field for a few years or who have their own expertise at a specific intersection. And I wanted an opportunity for everybody to have their expertise honored, whether they're a clinician or they're an advocate in the field or a recovery coach or an administrator. And the conference, the first two days are focused on patient care, three sessions per day on a different dimension of identity. So body size, class, race, gender, disability and neurodivergence and then like a more open-ended session and each session will take the approach of having breakout rooms for the first half and then a big group discussion for the second half and the first half we want everybody to explore what is going well in the field as it pertains to this identity 
what needs to be improved and how do we envision making those improvements? Because my real dream is that everybody walks away from the conference, not just with like three things they learned, but with a whole list of actions they could take immediately to transform their practices or even like where they could go for further education. And then the third day, the Saturday of the conference is focused on kind of healing the healers. So doing like a somatic liberation kind of movement session, sharing how we cope with harm that happens within the industry, because it sure does happen for those of us with underrepresented identities and doing some like collective dream mapping and figuring out as providers in the field, what is it that we hope to see both for our own self-care and for how we're able to deliver care to patients. I'm going to tell you, I got chills when you talked about the leaving with like a whole list of things, because when we go to typical conferences, here's the object, the three objectives, what three things will you be able to apply when you get back? It's so academic, I guess. I don't know. And this feels very inviting and for, for, for all of us, if we're in this field. So patient care, body size, class, race open-ended discussion this is a whole like turning it upside down on its head conference yeah and we actually we received a grant through the new york city department of health and part of that grant is i was already planning on doing this but we're going to create a post-conference report so anyone who couldn't attend we still synthesize all the themes that came up and all the recommendations and we publish it for anyone in the eating disorder field to access this is awesome Thank you. And we're going to have the information in the show notes. It is May 25th. Oh, is it the 25th? Okay. 25th to 27th. So it's the Thursday to Saturday before Memorial Day. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you're listening and even partially interested, sign up for it. I think we're going to have a uh, coupon code even for this podcast for your listeners. And since it's virtual or in person, you get an option, which is so hard to do as a conference planner, but so excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling the, the struggle with where we are in organizing, but I have like full faith and belief that it's a necessary offering and that I will not have any regrets once the weekend gets here. So we do have a bit of a wrap up question for you. If you were to take yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you do know now? And it could like take your time with it. And maybe it's, maybe you have a few different answers or it's not just one direct thing. That's fine. When I think about how I entered the field, it was through a mixture of my own lived experience and the academic research space. And I found building relationships with people to be the most impactful thing, both for my career and for my learning. This is just a sign of where my head is at right now. But I think the lesson I would tell myself then, particularly since I was in early recovery when I joined the field, is there is always nuance. (laughs) You know, I used to be a very, very rigid thinker. And I'm actually quite amazed that I don't believe that's my default anymore. But Even so, I see a lot of people expressing pretty rigid beliefs about the field, both in terms of feeling very defensive of current practices or having very progressive visions that I think are wonderful, but are not necessarily always realistic, given that this is an industry. (laughs) 
And I'm a very big fan of finding creative solutions and both ends thinking. Like if we got rid of the whole eating disorder industry right now, so many people would die. And the eating disorder industry right now harms a lot of people. So how do we approach it in such a way that we're not championing abolishing the whole eating disorder industry, <laughs> but we are being very proactive in making the necessary changes so that everyone has access to affordable and high quality care. And that is also why I work for Equip is, you know, the whole mission of Equip is affordable, accessible, high quality care. We don't always get everything right, but we're you know, our, our intentions are good. And there are people like me working there that will not put up with like truly harmful approaches and will hold people accountable. So I guess what I would tell myself a few years ago is there are more possibilities than I would have thought. I, I would have never envisioned myself working for a for-profit eating disorder company. <laughs> and, and now I see I see things a little bit differently. Some may say that makes me a sellout, but I think it has been like a great opportunity for me to experience growth around holding multiple things to be true. There are more possibilities. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing is being open to them and then allowing a company who it's not a sellout. It's really so someone who wants a group that wants to support you and you have the voice for that. And so you, I, I love too how you said the used to think you're, of yourself as a rigid thinker, but that had so much more to do with other things than your true self. So thank you so much, Scout, for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It was a good conversation. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethharrell.com slash